This morning we're continuing in our study of the book of Acts. So we will be in Acts chapter 18 this morning. So if you have your journals or Bibles, uh, your Acts journal or Bible, um, or we will project the words on the screen behind us. But before I dive in and read Acts 18, just really quickly to get a lay of the land, okay? So with, with respect to Acts. So if you're new to the Bible, okay, think in terms of the Old Testament, Everything in the Old Testament pointed forward to the hope of a Messiah, to a person. And then when the pages of the New Testament open up, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it focuses on that Messiah, Jesus Christ, who uh, in the Gospels, all about Jesus's ministry with his disciples while he was on this earth. But Acts is a continuation of the ministry of Jesus. It's just at the end of the Gospels, we see that Jesus died, rose from the grave, ascended to the right hand of the Father. Acts is the continuation of the ministry of Jesus through the power of his spirit that he sent to the disciples. So with that, there is actually a framework that's built into the book of Acts. It's Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That happens in Acts chapter 2. Jesus goes on to say, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea. Okay, that's Acts chapters 1 through 7, where the gospel is going throughout Jerusalem to Judea. And then starting in chapter 8, persecution breaks out, so the church has to spread to Samaria. So you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, to Samaria, Acts chapter 8, and to the ends of the earth. The gospel continues to spread throughout the book of Acts. And this morning we're in chapter 18, which is going to focus on the gospel spreading to from Athens, which is Acts 17, to Corinth in chapter 18. And with that, uh, let me pray for our time this morning. And as my practice, I'll uh, often like to take one of Paul's prayers and make it our own. So this prayer out of Colossians 1. Lord, as we come to your scriptures, I pray that you would fill us with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that we would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to you, that we would bear fruit and every good work increase in the knowledge of God. Lord, please strengthen us with power according to your might for endurance and patience with joy. So help us this morning as we sit under your scriptures to grow us in endurance and patience and that we would be people of great joy. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so Acts chapter 18. We're going to go verses 1 through 17. Chapter 18, verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. 
And he left there and went to a house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul, brought him before the tribunal and said, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, See to yourselves, I refuse to be judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sothenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. All right, so here we are. Verse 1, Luke tells us, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Now, I don't know what registers in your brain, but... Today in our world, like traveling to Athens or Corinth, that'd be great. A great little vacation sightseeing. Back in Paul's day, this was no vacation. You could say this was no Disneyland, right? Disneyland being the happiest place on earth, right? This, you could argue Corinth in this day, was one of the most hedonistic places on earth. And by hedonistic, meaning engaged in the pursuit of, of pleasure, sensuality, self-indulgence. That was what was known in Corinth. In fact, there was actually this known expression in Corinth that to Corinthianize meant to live immorally. One of the major attractions of Corinth was the temple of Aphrodite, fertility goddess of love, that temple was known to have more than a thousand temple prostitutes associated with it. So as you can imagine, immorality of all sorts was running rampant in Corinth in that day. And yes, Corinth would be an incredibly strategic city for Paul to establish a church and the gospel because population most projected at least 200,000, maybe well beyond that. And it was a port city a major trade route. So if you can establish the gospel in Corinth, the gospel will continue to spread to the ends of the earth. But due to the hedonism, and on top of that, multiple temples in Corinth to false gods, right? not an easy place for Paul to go on mission to. So in fact, we get a few more details of the difficulty of Paul's mission to Corinth in his late letters that he later wrote back to the church of Corinth. This would be First and Second Corinthians in the New Testament, letters that Paul wrote back to the church after his time in, in Corinth. And in First Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, here's what Paul says. He said, And when I came to you, brothers, okay, that's a reference to him going to 
Corinth in Acts 18, right? When I came to you, brothers, I did not come to you proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. What Paul's saying is, I didn't come trying to give eloquent speech like a lot of people in Corinth. I came with a simple but powerful message, Christ and him crucified. Verse 3, catch this. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Did you catch it? Right? I would think that Paul would have said, and I came to you in boldness. But instead, Paul says, I came to you in weakness and in fear, much trembling. In the margin of one of my Bibles, uh, I wrote years ago when I read this at the top, like, even Paul, exclamation point. He wasn't a stranger to fear, even to the point of trembling, discouragement. Paul wasn't a superhero, right? He was human. And why would Paul fear? Well, what was Paul's experience as he would proclaim the message of Jesus Christ to every city that he traveled to? Starting back in Acts 13 and all the way through Acts 17 leading up to Corinth, he was constantly met with attacks from various mobs. At times, trying to stone him. One time, at least one time, successful with stoning him. Right? They thought, uh, they stoned him to the point where they thought he was dead. And then there's the uh, time that he and Silas are stripped of their clothes, beaten with rods, thrown into prison. Right? Everywhere Paul went, he was attacked. So I think we can understand maybe the fear. Like if, if you're Paul and you're heading to Corinth and past, past events are best predictor of future events, what awaits you in Corinth? Have you all ever been attacked by a mob? I actually have. It was my 21st birthday in my fraternity. Okay, so if you're like, oh, frat boy. Okay, so God got a hold of my life in my fraternity. So much so that I was beginning to really grow in my relationship with Christ while I was in the fraternity. But my 21st birthday rolled around. And I knew the tradition of my fraternity. So I went up in my room quietly, took the back stair, tried, tried for nobody to understand or know I was there. Um, this was around midnight. And I hear these footsteps coming down the hall. And I hear the voice of a mob. They're actually just four friends. But anyway, uh, this mob that knocks on my door and says, hey, Donahoe, it's your birthday. Open the door. I just stayed silent in my bed, and then I hear keys jingling, and I see my doorknob beginning to open, and there they are. And you have to understand in that moment, um, a little bit about my fraternity, the tradition. So I want to be careful, little ears in the cornfield, right? Uh, that's a Kansas phrase for, like, kids in the audience. Anyway, um, so I, uh, the tradition was to have you drink lots of beverages out of little glasses, and then to return you back to your birthday suit, and then to throw you in a fountain in the middle of campus. So, a couple problems with this. One, my birthday's November 24th. That's a cold fountain. Number two, overlooking that fountain would be the girl that I was dating, Tiffany, later to be my wife. 
Uh, she lived in a house that was upper level right over it. And so I kind of wanted to avoid that whole scenario. So this mob comes in my room and let's just call it a cage match. Like the only thing that worked well for me is they would rather go back to drinking that than continue to be punched and kicked by me to avoid them getting me out of the room and doing what they were going to do to me. I didn't kick them in or punch them in the face. They were my friends, right? But it was, um, but they left the room after they gave up because <laughs> I was not going to give up. Uh, every time I thought about giving up, I just, yeah, imagine a cold fountain and my girlfriend with her friends being like, oh, who's the poor guy that's getting thrown? Oh, that's Chad, <laughs> right? So um, they leave. I'm laying in bed. I'm actually pretty traumatized, fearful, trembling, right? Is that kind of like Paul? Actually, no, it's not really. No, that's, uh, that's a little different than Paul's experience, right? Way different than Paul's experience. I mean, yeah, trembling, fear, but can you imagine Paul's experience? Like, these are my friends. People were constantly trying to kill Paul for his faith, Right? Um, but maybe we can identify with Paul in a different way. May not be that we're attacked by angry mobs, right? Persecuting us for our Christian faith. But can we relate to Paul's uh, fear and discouragement of seeking to live a life faithful in a culture that is apathetic or at times even hostile to the gospel? See, we're called to live faithfully. Bear witness to the glory of the cross. But here's what Paul tells us. Again, in some of his letters written back to the church of Corinth, he says this, that the gospel is veiled to those who are perishing, that the God of this world, namely Satan, has blinded the mind of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the, of the gospel of the glory of Christ. He goes on to say that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It's foolishness. It's crazy talk to those who are perishing. And like Corinth, we live in a fallen world, right? Where hedonism runs rampant, pleasure above all things. Immorality of all sorts runs rampant. A world where worldly wisdom is set up against the wisdom of God in the scriptures. And increasingly... The wisdom of the scriptures, the glory of the cross seems foolish, like crazy talk to a culture around us. And while Paul experienced persecution, we could say with a capital P, like he received beatings and imprisonment. Maybe we're not experiencing persecution, but we do, if we seek to live faithful to Christ, we do experience pressure, right? Pressure to conform to the world around us, pressure to remain silent with the wisdom that we have from the scriptures, pressure to remain silent with the hope of the gospel, and maybe we fear the repercussions of living faithfully to Christ among our friends and family members and co-workers, wherever we go. See quite a few teenagers here. It's hard, isn't it? It's hard living faithfully when others may be Judging you, you may be missing out, or at least you think you're missing out. You may be left out. That's hard. 
For parents, we fear at times. We fear for us, but we also fear for our kids. What kind of, and even grandkids, right? What kind of pressure will they face? And will they face persecution with a capital P? Right? How bad will it get? In a fallen world, it's easy to feel trapped in fear, anxiety, discouragement. So maybe we can identify a little bit with Paul. Persecution's real. Paul himself declared in 2 Timothy 3, told Timothy, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. What did Paul need and what do we need? Here's the heart of the book, or, or the Acts chapter 18. What Paul needed, what we need. Do not fear. We can trust the providence and the promises of God. That's what we're going to see in chapter 18. The providence of God and the promises of God, especially in the midst of persecution. Now, I just mentioned providence, so let me explain what I mean. I mean, well, first, persecution, like, that's really clear. Throughout the book of Acts, angry mobs are attacking Christians. That's pretty clear. But we have to be able to pick up the providential hand of God throughout the book of Acts. And it's awesome in Acts chapter 18 of what God does. So, by providence, let me explain what I mean and what I don't mean. Okay. A great definition of providence would come from the Westminster Confession of Faith. This is our, our biblical summary of doctrine. So, if you wanted to understand what's the providence of God, what, is, what does that mean? You can look through all the scriptures. That would be great. But it's summarized in the Westminster Confession of Faith with this. The question, what are God's works of providence? Here's the answer. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. Two key words there. God preserves. God faithfully preserves his people. We see it all through the Old Testament. Whether it's Noah or Moses, Abraham, Joseph, it's Esther. We see God preserving his people. He's faithful to them. But then also, the other word, God governs. He's in control over all things, the universe, nature, animals, all humans, all nations, angels, demons, Satan. Like if there's an organizational chart, it's not God and Satan on the same line. It's God and Satan way down here. Like God is over all things. And the beauty of God's providential care is that he's perfectly holy, perfectly wise, perfectly powerful. His plan's perfectly good. But here's where we can get tripped up with God's providence. We want to know ahead of time God's detailed plan for us in sufficient detail. For instance, years ago, and this is an example of, of, bad, of, of the bad idea of providence. Okay, so years ago, Tiffany and I were wrestling through a major decision regarding our future. We had come to a crossroads where I had to figure out Kind of what am I going to do when I grow up, right? So we decided, we, I still remember, we lived in this neighborhood. We went for a walk in our neighborhood to talk and to pray. And it was one of those prayers, Lord, give us wisdom. Lord, make it easy on us. Lord, we don't know what to do. Even a, you ever have those moments like, can you just give me a sign? Right? Well, um, right after I finished my prayer, it just so happened that a car sped by. And this car went over a speed bump. 
and it was pretty much in front of us, like 30 yards away, and out of the back seat of the car on the ledge, a book flies out right in front of us. Just finished praying. I look at Tiffany, and she looks at me. We're like, maybe? <laughs> so I go over, I'll reenact it. Speed bump. Book. Okay. So I pick up the book. I didn't do that in the first service, and I shouldn't have done it in this service because that was a little stupid. But anyway. Okay. So I pick up the book, and I held in my hand this book right here, Harlequin Romance, Charlotte Lamb, Infatuation. <laughs> right? Now, hold on. Uh, I could give you a little bit of book, a little bit on the back, just like, Lord, are you speaking to me through a Harlequin romance novel? Well, Judith, um, she starts to fall for Luke Dalton, who's a financial wizard. He's climbing in the company, and she's a secretary. But Luke is married to Judith's good friend, whose name is Baba. Baba, right? And so... Yeah, call me crazy, but I don't think God was speaking to me through a Harlequin romance novel, right? But sometimes that's what we want. God, give me a sign. We will look for signs. We want to know, is there a detailed plan? Is there a detailed map? And here's what God is doing often in our lives. Well, I'll say it this way. As one commentator put it, one of the many lessons in Acts that it teaches quietly as it goes along is that you tend to get the guidance you need when you need it, not before and not in too much detail. And this is what we're going to see throughout Acts. God is constantly with Paul, constantly provided, but God did not provide a scroll of his detailed plan to fall out of a chariot in front of, in front of Paul. Right? Instead, God is providing every step of the way for Paul Paul, what he is called to do, just like us, is to walk by faith. So, let's look at verses 2 through 5. Luke tells us, verse 2, that when Paul arrived in Corinth, he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Okay, what Acts doesn't tell us, but that reliable biblical historians tell us, is that the reason Aquila and Priscilla were kicked out of Italy was due to persecution. Apparently, in at least one or more of the synagogues in Italy, the gospel was going forth. And so, in the synagogues, there was a riot among the Jewish community. And the riot was those who were rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. Because of that commotion, Claudius, emperor of Rome, ordered all Jews to leave Rome. So... And hear these words clearly. It just so happened. And anytime you hear me say it just so happened, that is code word for God's providential hand. Okay? Just so happened that Aquila and Priscilla relocated from Italy to Corinth. It just so happened that Paul finds them in a city of over 200,000 people. Just so happens that they work in the same trade as tent makers. Like, don't think North Face tents. Think like goat hair cloth and leather. This is old school camping, but anyway. So think about what God is doing. God is providing for Paul every step of the way. It is likely that Aquila and Priscilla had either hired Paul or partnered with Paul, but the fact that Paul can sustain himself alongside them in the tent making ministry allowed him to stay in Corinth. And as Luke tells us, reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath, 
trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. God is providing for Paul every step of the way in, with his providential hand. Also, further provision in verse 5, Silas and Timothy arrive from Macedonia. Okay, how does God provide for Paul again? Paul, or, or, or who did I just say? Um, Silas and Timothy, right? They're partners with Paul in the mission, and so they're going to be a great encouragement to Paul. But it also, it just so happens that these churches in Macedonia, we find from other portions of Scripture, sent a financial gift to Paul so that Paul is freed up and has the resources to continue to testify to the Jews, verse 5, that Jesus was the Christ. So God is providing for Paul, and he's able to share freely this message that uh, Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. And how do the Jews respond to Paul's message of hope that the Messiah has arrived finally in the person of Jesus? Well, persecution. Here we go again. Verse 6. Luke tells us that they opposed and reviled Paul. That reviled is angrily insulting, attacking Paul. So Paul shook out his garments, right? This is a gesture of rejection. Like it's, you know, it's the old like talk to the hand, right? It's rejection. And Paul declared, from now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Essentially, Paul is saying, your eternal fate is on your own heads. You have dug your own grave. You have the scriptures, but you have failed to connect the dots from the Old Testament to this Messiah. To the, it's the person of Jesus Christ. You have rejected it. So Paul says, I'm done. I'm innocent of your blood. I will now go to the Gentiles. And again, let's look at the providential hand of God here. Luke tells us in verse 7, he left there and went to a house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue, Luke tells us. Just so happens that this worship of God is right next to the synagogue. Here's what that means. Paul is now, the synagogue is a major central location for God's people, right, to come worship. So Paul's right next door, just so happens at this house able to teach out of this house, likely hold worship services out of this house, so that when people are on their way to the synagogue and they pass next door to this house, they're able to look over and say, huh, what's going on there? And God is drawing people in. We see verse 8, Crispus, ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. Entire household typically would be the spouse, children, close relatives. This is no small detail. Can you imagine the stir that this would have produced? Hey, did you hear Crispus, our, our synagogue ruler, now believes that Jesus is the Messiah that we have been waiting for? What? Luke tells us many of the Corinthians also believed and were baptized in the name of Jesus. The gospel is spreading in Corinth. But what is a repeated pattern in the book of Acts. As the gospel increases and spreads, what also tends to increase and spread? Persecution, oppression. Again, Paul's not a superhero. He's human, not exempt from fear and discouragement. 
God knows Paul and assures Paul with these words. This is verse 9 and 10. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. No one will attack you or harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. It's a beautiful promise. Here's the heart of Acts 18. Again, do not fear. God is with us. God is at work through providence, through his promises. God meets Paul exactly where he is. Recall that Paul had admitted that when he came to the Corinthians, he came in fear and in trembling. And what's God's command to him? Paul, do not be afraid. But go on speaking and do not be silent. God meets Paul exactly where he is. And it's it's interesting, in the Greek, that verb, um, do not be afraid, The tense in the Greek is such that it seems that Paul had given himself over, surrendered to, repeatedly, fear. Right? Paul's like us. And yet Paul, God meets him where he is. And look at the promises that follow this command for Paul not to be silent. God says, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. It's the covenant kindness of God in these promises. And when I say covenant kindness, I mean, we see covenant, that word throughout the whole, all the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament. What's God's covenant? God's promise that he will be faithful to his people and that he will secure a people to himself and that he will be with his people. It's God's covenant kindness. Paul, I am with you. I'm not going anywhere. I'm with you. And then we see further, Um, this promise. No one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Yes, Paul's going to continue to be persecuted, but not physically harmed. That's the difference here. Because other places he's been, Philippi, Berea, Thessalonica, he's been physically harmed, God's promises. But in Corinth, I will not allow physical harm. And so what this allows for In God's providence, again, verse 11, Paul stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. That's way longer than most of the other places because Paul was typically run out of town. What an encouragement those promises must have been to Paul. I am with you. Keep on speaking. I'm with you. Don't be silent. I have many in this city. Promises, the encouragement to Paul, the question is, are they encouraging to us? Here's a question. As we read Acts 18, what jumps out at you and seems to be really true of the experience of our culture that shapes us? I would argue that for me and for us, oftentimes what seems really true of Acts 18 is verse 6. They opposed and reviled him. That feels really real, doesn't it? We don't want that. We don't want to be opposed and reviled for our faith. That produces fear. But what's more powerful, that verse or verse 10? I am with you. I have many in this city who are my people. What shapes our actions? Is it fear of persecution? Or is it the promises of God? Are we, the church, a people who remain silent due to pressure and persecution... Or will we actually trust that God is with us, powerful enough 
to use very ordinary people with a powerful message that saves if they hear the gospel. Now, we may not be called like Paul to go to Corinth as an apostle to spread the gospel and plant churches, right? But we are called to bear witness with our lives as our lives embody the fruit of the gospel. But we're also called to bear witness with our lips as we talk about the hope of the gospel. Let me just pause there, the hope of the gospel. What is your hope? What is your hope? Is your hope that if you attend church, that's good enough? If God, is your hope God grades on a scale? This is the way I thought before I became a Christian, that if I'm just good enough, and surely I am because I haven't committed any of the major sins, that that's good enough to make it into heaven. Here's the reality the Bible teaches. All of us have sin. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And here's what this means. There are eternal destinies at stake. There is heaven and there is hell. Here's the reality of heaven. No sin can enter into heaven. Not with a holy and perfect God. So if we have even any sin in our life, past, present, future sin, heaven will not be a place that we can go. Except if somebody pays for our sin. Why did Jesus Christ die on the cross? He died on the cross. He shed his blood so that the wrath of God towards sin would fall on Jesus and not on us. Is that your hope? Because if your hope is, is in being good enough, you'll never be good enough and heaven will not be yours. But if your hope is in Christ, that you have bowed your knees and your heart to live for him and if he has taken your sin upon himself, then that opens up the way, the only way to eternal life with God. We receive the gospel. We receive it. Can't earn it. But then, after we've received it, we offer it to others. Right? That's the Christian life. The command of Paul here can be applied to us. Do not be afraid. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And maybe that's intimidating. Right? Sharing the gospel may be really intimidating. I get it. What, what would, okay, what would I share? Paul says it really well. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us being saved, it is the power of God. It's not about how eloquent we are. It's that if we talk about the cross, we are talking about a powerful message. God does the work. The promise of God, for I have many in this city who are mine. Can we trust God is powerful enough to use us? That the message of the cross is powerful enough to save? We don't have to be eloquent Paul says he wasn't eloquent. He just talked about the cross, right? Okay, let's say you're like, no way. I just can't. I'm not there yet. Okay. How about invite people to church? We'll do the work for you. In our Sunday services, if you've noticed, usually in the liturgy leading up to the sermon, not usually every time, we talk about the cross, the gospel. And then the sermon, we talk about the gospel. I just did a second ago, right? And then in the Lord's Supper, we see the gospel. We talk about it again. Happy to do the work. In fact, um, just a, uh, a week ago, I was at my local fitness place, right? I was on my stationary bike. In God's providence, it's just so happened, the guy next to me, his bike broke. So he starts talking about, hey, do you know, you know what I need to do to this bike? So we engage in conversation. I'm talking with him and find out that he, uh, he's new 
to Littleton. He and his girlfriend just moved here. They're in their mid-20s. And I'm like, hey, you're new to Littleton. Like, I, I go to a great church. Um, I would love if you, ever, if, you got, if you and your girlfriend are interested in attending church, um, please come check out Deer Creek Church. Love to have you visit. You know what his response was? He says, yeah, we won't, but thank you. <laughs> right? Okay. That wasn't hard. He didn't throw barbells at me. I wasn't persecuted. Right? What does it mean to sometimes not, do not be silent means share the gospel. Sometimes it's just keep a conversation going. The providential hand of God. It's a strong and powerful hand. Do we trust a God is with us and has people who we rub shoulders with who will believe if they hear the gospel? This is why we plant churches. This is why we want many of you to go with David and Jennifer Rapp to Golden. It is not because we do not like you. We do. It is because we do not look at Deer Creek Church as a place where we just want to be safe as Christians. And we don't want to build our own kingdom here at Deer Creek Church. We want to see communities and lives transformed with the gospel. So we want to plant churches in Golden and then Aurora and the Federal Corridor and eventually Highlands Ranch and Sterling Ranch, taking the gospel, uh, partnering with churches in South Africa, the, the UK, Scotland. Do not be afraid. Go on speaking. Do not be silent. For I'm with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. We have to trust by faith God has many people in all these cities, right? Calls us to be faithful. The heart of Acts 18, do not fear. God is with us. We can trust the providential hand of God and we can trust the promises of God. I mentioned um, at the beginning, there's this interplay oftentimes throughout the book of Acts between persecution and God's providence. And here we see it again in our last section. I'm going to summarize it briefly. Verses 12 through 17. Once again, the Jews make this united attack on Paul and brought him before Gallio, who is the proconsul. So proconsul, think important governor, think military commander, right? Guy in charge of, you know, for Rome. So they bring Paul before Gallio. And here's the accusation. Verse 13, this man, Paul, is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Here's what's at stake. This is really important. If Gallio sides with the mob, essentially that means Christianity is illegal at that point and punishable if you seek to spread the Christian faith. If Gallio sides with Paul, then at that point... Christianity is legal. Paul and the other Christians are free to teach for it to spread. Here's what Luke tells us. Now recall the command of God in verse 9 where he said, Paul, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Remember that command? So here's Paul surrounded by a mob in front of Gallio. Luke tells us verse 14, but when Paul was about to open his mouth to give a defense... It just so happens. Gallio said to the Jews, so I'm going to stop there. Gallio said to the Jews, I'm going to summarize. I mean, what just happened is Gallio cuts Paul off before he can even make a defense. And essentially what Gallio does is say, you have no case here to the Jewish mob. Essentially, get out of, get out of my tribunal, right? 
the providential hand of God. Before Paul even had to speak, God provided. And what happened there is the gospel is free to continue to spread. So yes, like Paul, we'll experience persecution if we seek to live a godly life in Christ. And yes, the providential hand of God will be at work no matter what we go through. God does protect his word going forth. He does protect his witnesses, calls us to walk by faith. God says, do not be afraid, go on speaking, do not be silent, for I have many in this city who are my people. And who do we rub shoulders with who need to hear the gospel? Who do we rub shoulders with that just simply need to be invited to church? And we'll talk about the gospel. Yes, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but that verse goes on. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Again, it is not about our power with the words. It is just being faithful, opening our mouths. Power of God is at work, will be at work. And yes, these promises are true to Paul, and they extend to us. God is with us. God is with us and is at work providentially in our lives. Can't always see it. We don't know it ahead of time. But God is at work providentially in our lives. And God is at work through his promises. His promises to be with us. His promises to protect us. Right? Jesus himself said, no one can snatch the sheep out of my hands. We're protected. Right? But what's, the, what's our ultimate protection? We see it at this table. Right? That God himself took on flesh, his body, he gave for us at the cross, his blood, he shed for us on the cross. Jesus himself, remember verse six, opposed and reviled? Jesus himself was opposed and reviled in his perfect life all the way to the cross. And yet Jesus was faithful. And why was he faithful? The joy of obedience to the Father and the joy of securing us joy of securing us into God's family.